For about five years, the cable channel TLC carried a program called My Strange Addiction. Anyone here see an episode of My Strange Addiction? Okay, a few hands have gone up. Those of you who haven't seen it, I thought about bringing a clip of the show so that you could just kind of get an idea of what this show used to be like. But then I opted not to because I didn't want you starting off my message feeling really, really queasy. I mean, because it is an awkward show. You see these people with these incredibly strange addictions. Like there's the lady who was addicted to eating cat food or the lady addicted to eating cat hair. There's the lady addicted to eating the stuffing out of her couch. And someone else was addicted to eating toilet paper. Right? And those are just some of the ones I feel comfortable sharing aloud. Right? And, and that's just some of the eating episodes. I mean, there, there was some lady who was like addicted to sniffing gas. Like every 10 minutes, she had to get a whiff of gasoline. Uh, someone else was addicted to, let's see, their little like stuffed lamb that they took everywhere. Uh, so, oh, there was one guy, he's addicted to pulling hair out of shower drains. Like he said about three times a week, he just had, he just had to like pull his hair out. And I'm not going to tell you all that he did with it. Right? Like I said, I don't want you starting off queasy. It, it's just weird. It's awkward. It's kind of like when you're on the interstate and you see a really, really bad car wreck. Like you don't want to look and yet you can't help but look and you might see something that makes you go, ooh, and then you look back. Right? That's kind of what the show is like. Like I found myself, like I'd heard of it. I'd never seen it before. I started kind of looking at it and then it was like, oh, I, I can't do it. I can't do it. And I turned it off. And next thing I know, you know, day later, I'm back on YouTube looking at another episode, you know, looking for examples and to use in my message. It's just an awkward show. Well, I will say this. One thing about these people, as disturbed as they probably are, they do have one thing going for them. They're proving that they are very committed people. And I believe that by watching the show, you actually discover that it isn't just these particular individuals who are committed, but that really all humans are committed. We are all devoted to something. Now, you might have a hidden secret ad addiction, and if so, let's try to help you, all right? But chances are that you are devoted to more normal things. You, you might be devoted to your family. And, and that's a good thing. You're devoted to your job. You, some people, they're really, really devoted to a hobby. Some, they're really, really committed to a specific sports team. We are devoted people. Now, we probably aren't going to end up on a reality show, but yet we're really not that much different than the people on My Strange Addiction. We, too, are very, very committed. What, how do you know what you're uh, like committed to? How, how do you know what your commitment is given to? I think that really whatever consumes your thoughts, your time, your money, that reveals what you are committed to. Which means if you spend three hours every day watching cat videos on YouTube, we kind of know what your secret addiction is. We all are committed to something. Because we give our time, our thoughts, our money to various things. But I want to go a little deeper with this. In the uh, show, My Strange Addiction, uh, there was a gal in the second season. Her name was Tamara. Tamara was addicted to her pillow. So addicted, she actually named her pillow. Her pillow was named Boo. 
Tamara was a 33-year-old woman who got Boo at an antique shop when she was four years old. And she took Boo everywhere. Grocery store, movie theater, I mean, just to drive around. She always had her Boo with her. And Tamara and Boo, they were besties. So if I were to ask you, what is Tamara devoted to? You'd probably say, Boo. And that should scare us. However, when Tamara, some of you got it, thank you. Uh, but when Tamara was asked why she carried her boo everywhere, she said this. I like how it feels. There's just something about the sensation of how it feels in my hands. I know that when I touch it, everything is going to be better. So now let me ask you, what is Tamara devoted to? Is it really her boo or is it herself? Because if you really hear what she's saying, the reason she carries her pillow around with her everywhere is because this pillow helps her know she's going to be all right. Really, her dedication is to herself. She wants to feel good about herself. She wants to feel safe. She wants to know everything's going to be okay. And she somehow turned this pillow into that emotional crutch that convinces her, I'm going to be okay. I think if we took most of our addictions, most of our things that we are devoted to, and we began to peel it back like that, I think what we discover is that we too are also devoted to self. That the reason we do the certain hobbies that we have, the reason that we give ourselves to a specific sports team, the reason we are so devoted to family or to our job or whatever is because when you start pulling it back really deep down, it's a really a commitment to self. Now, I want you, in a sense, to be committed to yourself, all right? Because it means you're probably going to take good care of yourself, you know, be in good health, it will probably be better for your relationships. But when you take your commitment to self and you now make it your primary commitment, that's when the problem starts to come in. Because it was the commitment to self that led to the very first sin. When Adam and Eve ate of the forbidden fruit, they shifted their commitment to God to self. Which is kind of funny if you think about it. The reason they ate of the fruit was so that they could be more like God, but they were already like God. They had been made in the image of God. And yet, somehow they were convinced that they weren't enough like God. That, that by eating of this forbidden fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, if they ate it, then they would be even more like God. So for their own success, for their own happiness, they shifted their commitment from God to self. And they sunk their teeth into the fruit. And humans have been sinking their teeth into the false fruit of self-commitment ever since. All you have to do is see the New Year calendar roll around and hear people make their New Year's resolutions, and you discover people have this commitment to self. It's in our weight loss programs. It's, it's in our job pursuits. It's, it's in you know the, the relationships we want to have. It, it's the way we try to better ourselves. And those aren't bad things. But when you take these good things and you make them ultimate things, now you end up with a bad thing and end up sinking your teeth into forbidden fruit. That is why sometimes we need to just stop and do something to kind of shake us out of this. Because oftentimes we are like Adam and Eve. We will shift from 
a commitment to God to a commitment to self. And as we gravitate toward that commitment to self, sometimes we need to remove something to remind us of where our true commitment should lie. Because when we have a commitment to God, everything else begins to fall into place. But when we take this good thing and make it the ultimate thing, now we have a bad thing. That's why today we start off this 21 days of fasting and prayer. I'm going to ask you toward the end of this message to give up one thing for the next 21 days. And I'm going to ask you to give up something that's going to cost you. Like you're going to feel it. Because sometimes we need to take that thing and remove it for a time to remind ourselves, I don't need my boo. I don't need this. I need God. And it reminds us that God is enough. And your true joy will be found in him. And oftentimes, we then begin to get a right view of self in the process. So during this 21 days of fasting and prayer, on Sundays, we're going to go into 2 Timothy chapter 3 and 4. And we're going to see how Paul calls Timothy to renew his commitment. And what we're going to see is today that he calls him to renew his commitment to God. Next week, we're going to see a commitment to growth, to spiritual growth. And then we're going to see just overall a commitment to the gospel. So we're going to open up to 2 Timothy 3. And as we get ready to go into the scriptures, let me pray. So Heavenly Father, I pray that you would speak loud and clear to your people today. This wouldn't be about what I want to say or what I have prepared to say. I pray that you would take my words and through your Holy Spirit, you'd filter it to what exactly these people need to hear. Everyone that is gathered here today is at a different place spiritually. Some are, are checking you out, looking into this relationship. Some are, have been following you just for a bit. Some have been following you for a long time. And yet I believe that you have something here for each and every one of us. And so God, would you just unpack 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 13? Would you help us to hear your call to be committed to you? And God, then would you give us the guts and the boldness and the courage to follow you and to do what you're asking us to do so that we might have that renewed sense that you are God, you are good, you love us, you're for us, you're with us, and you're calling us to something greater. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, so if you've got a Bible and you haven't opened it up yet, go ahead and open it up to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Uh, if you don't have a paper Bible, please, always, we've got paper copies on the table. Feel free to grab one when you walk in. Or if you don't own a Bible, take one of those, make it yours. All right, if you've got a Bible on your smartphone, feel free to use that as well. Uh, but for those of you who don't have anything in front of you, I've got it on the screen. Let me just set the stage here as you're turning to, to 2 Timothy 3. The letter's written by Paul, uh, the Apostle Paul. He's writing to Timothy. Timothy was a pastor. If you go into the book of Acts, you'll see that Timothy followed Paul around for a number of years doing ministry. Uh, Paul was kind of like Timothy's mentor. And then Paul ends up in Ephesus, a kind of a key strategic city. And he plants a church there. And, and Paul lived in Ephesus for three years, the longest he lived in any place once he began his missionary travels. And he plants this church. And because it's such a key strategic church, he decides to leave his best and his brightest. He leaves Timothy, and Timothy becomes the pastor of that church. Well, to continue to mentor Timothy, Paul wrote him letters. We know of at least two. The second letter, 2 Timothy, was probably Paul's last letter ever written. Now, there seem to be some indications in here that Paul thinks that he's about to be executed. You see, he was under house arrest in Rome, and it seems like possibly his death is coming. And so he's writing to Timothy, 
it's a really kind of a dangerous time for, for Christianity. Many scholars believe that, uh, that Paul wrote this letter to Timothy after 64 AD. In 64 AD, that's when Rome, much of Rome, burned to the ground. Nero, the emperor, blamed the Christians. Now, some historical evidence seems to show that it actually Nero burned Rome down so that he could rebuild what he wanted to build. And so, hey, those Christians were a nice little scapegoat, so he blamed them. So now people really hate Christians. So it's starting to get really, really dangerous for them. They, they could get arrested. Some were being killed for their faith. And so some started to go into hiding, which meant that some Christians were starting to disassociate with guys like Paul because Paul is very publicly under house arrest because of his faith in Jesus. He was preaching the gospel, and now this is costing him his life, and he's under house arrest. So they disassociate from him. They're pulling back from him and from the faith. And by pulling back, they're revealing that their primary commitment was not necessarily to God. Their primary commitment is still to self because they're all about self-protection. And, and so Paul is writing to Timothy, and as you read today's words, it's almost like Paul is saying, so Timothy, what are you going to do? Are you going to remain committed to God? Or are you going to be like everyone else and just kind of pull back from me and the gospel? So join me in chapter 3, starting in verse 1. But understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, uh, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. The list that Paul just gives to Timothy is a long list of people committed to self. No, notice the very first item in the list there in verse 2. He says, for people will be lovers of self. And he begins to describe the people who love themselves, the various things that they do, that if they stay committed to self, that's the path that they go down, and those are the characteristics that begin to come out. But if you really start paying attention to those things, you start discovering that those aren't the things that are going to get you to happiness. Actually, many of these items, they're going to be the fastest path to unhappiness. It's kind of like being stranded out in the ocean in a boat. And your empty, your water bottle is empty. Thankfully, mine is not because I'm really thirsty. But you're out in the boat and no, you have no drinking water. And now you're surrounded by water and it starts looking really, really good. And so you bend down and you drink. Problem is, it's filled with salt and minerals that will dehydrate you and it won't satisfy your thirst. And so you dip down again and you drink even more. But that just continues to dehydrate you even more. And the cycle just continues until it leads to your destruction. That's what the things in this list are like. They look like they're life-giving. They look like something that if you engage in and do this, this will get you what you want. But they're salt water to the soul. Let's just look at a couple of them so you can see this. Um, out of verse 2, I'm going to pick the word abusive. All right, how many of you like being around someone who is an abusive person? All right, thank you. I'm glad no hands went up. 
right? No one likes to be around someone who is abusive. So why would anyone be abusive then if no one wants to be around someone? Because you, being committed to self, want to get certain things. And so you want to have this person who's with you give you what you want. And when they won't do it in the way you want at the time you want, you begin to abuse them physically, emotionally, verbally. You'll do what you can to manipulate them to get what you want because it's all about you. Now, they might end up doing it. They don't like the abuse, and so they give in, and you get what you want. But are you really now happy? Because you just damaged the relationship. There's now no trust. They're pulled away from you. And you probably have to get more abusive to get what you want from them. And the cycle just continues, continues, continues until you destroy the relationship and you destroy yourself. Let's pick one that might even hit a little closer to home, especially for middle school and high school students here. Right after the word abusive, it says disobedient to their parents. Kids, we don't like that one, do we? Any kid here, like every time mom and dad ask you to do something, you put immediately down whatever you have and yes, mom, I'll do it happily. I'm so glad no hands went up. All right. Otherwise, I'm going to have to call you a liar. No, like you're engaged in your video game. And so when mom says, hey, come set the table. No, you want to complete the level. You do not want to quit and go and, and do that. This is what's going to make you happy. When you defeat the big bad boss in your game, now that's happiness. Setting the table, that's not going to make me happy. Or, or when dad says, hey, I noticed you've got that laundry basket sitting for the last three days. Why don't you actually put the clothes in the dresser drawers? Like, do the task. Finish it. But you're right in the middle of a very important cat video on YouTube. You can't because the cat's going to make you happy. Putting your clothes in the drawer will not. Or when they say, all right, it's time to go. Put on your coat. Put on your shoes. We've got to head off. You're right in the middle of a chapter. You, you can't quit now. This chapter is going to, you want to know what's going to happen. This is what's going to make you happy. Putting on your shoes and coats and go out into the cold? No way. That's not going to make me happy. And so inside, we say, no. We rebel. We are disobedient to our parents. What's the result? Well, first of all, you're going to cause your parents to want to lean back into that previous word, abusive. Uh, all right, so moms and dads, be careful. But kids, you put such a strain on the relationship that your parents really begin to struggle to trust you because you aren't going to be obedient. You're not doing what they say. So how can they trust you when you're not with them? So then the next time you ask them, hey, can I go play at my friend's house? They might end up having to say no. Because they're not quite sure that they can trust what you're going to do at that friend's house. And now you're not getting what you want to be happy. So often we engage in these items, whether it's being proud or arrogant or abusive or disobedient parents or any of these items. And we engage in them thinking this is what's going to get us happiness. But it's actually the fastest path to unhappiness. And that's what Paul starts pointing out next. He starts showing what happens to the person who is so committed to, their, to, to self, that this is what begins to happen. Pick it up with me in verse 6. For among them, from among those who are lovers of self, are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. 
but they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. You know, sometimes I admit when I'm reading the Bible and I, I read a passage like that, you sometimes start thinking like, oh, he must be speaking about like something back then, some, you know, specific person or, you know, false teachers, but that sort of thing doesn't happen now. But when I was living in Colorado, working as the worship director at a small little church plant, we had this lady, a widow. She was in her late 30s. And she joined our church. She was the secretary at the school where we met. And so she'd heard about our church, so she started to attend. And she had two kids, a high school daughter and a middle school son. And they got involved. Well, about six to nine months into their time with our church family, she showed up one Sunday with a guy, a new boyfriend. And honestly, we were kind of excited for her. We knew how hard life had been since her husband had passed away. But then we started to get to know this guy. And all sorts of little red flags started popping up. It turns out that they had met at a Bible study that he was leading. And so you think, oh great, she's meeting a Christian guy. However, during this Bible study, he would begin to tear down every single pastor that he knew of and try and prove how they were wrong and he was right. Pretty soon it became evident that the only one who could truly interpret the Bible was this guy. And the more he got meshed into this family, the more controlling he began to get. My wife having me tutoring their daughter in math. And we began to discover some things going on in the relationship. And it really began to scare us. And I remember one time in my own Bible reading, I just happened to be in 2 Timothy 3. And as soon as I read these verses, that guy popped to mind. This type still exists. There are Janices and Jambres around. Now, I'll be honest, I really don't know how to pronounce their names. So if you have a better pronunciation, go for it, all right? By the way, this is a little Bible trick. If you don't know how to pronounce something in the Bible, just say it with authority, and most people think you know what you're doing, okay? Just make it up, okay? But we're just going to call these guys Jane and Jim, right? Jane and Jim, they were magicians for, for a pharaoh back in Egypt. So when Moses walks up to, to uh, the pharaoh and says, let my people go, and the pharaoh says, no, Moses says, all right, I'm going to show you the power of my God. And he throws his staff down, and it turns into a snake, However, Jim and Jane, they throw their staffs down and this also turned into snakes. And when God sent the first plague to turn the water into to blood, uh, Jane and Jim did the exact same thing. They were trying to show that the God of Moses is not nearly as powerful as Moses claims he is, that we can do the same thing. However, as you keep going, suddenly they reached a point where they couldn't. But Jewish tradition held that these two guys opposed Moses and in opposing Moses, they were opposing the will of God. Now, why did Moses go to Pharaoh? It was to release the people from slavery. Why does God send you, if you follow Jesus, into the world? It's to tell people about the freedom that can be found in Jesus. However, if you are committed to self, you now are acting like these two magicians. You are opposing the will of God. You are opposing God freeing people because your goal is all about you. You're committed to self. God is saying, no, I want you committed to me. And to be committed to me means to go and tell people about the freedom that they can find in Jesus. If you continue down the path to selfishness, if you continue being arrogant, if you continue being abusive, if you continue being all those things that Paul describes there in verses 2 through 5, you will end up gravitating and becoming like Jim and Jane. That's why Paul starts the next verse off with however. Look at it in verse 10. 
Paul says to Timothy, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. All right, now let's stop for a second. Did you notice how many times he just used the word my? It sounds like he's being the very type of person that he was just preaching against just a few verses before. Why is he saying my faith, my aim in life? Well, we got to ask ourselves, well, what was Paul's faith? What was his aim? Well, he answers it in the next set of verses. Verse 11, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus. Let me read that again in a slightly different way. Indeed, all who are committed to God through Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. So what was it, or rather, who was it that Paul was committed to? It wasn't himself. It was God. You see, if Paul had been committed to self, he would not have been out there traveling, trying to tell people about Jesus. And this guy had been whipped for his faith. He'd been shipwrecked. He, he was now in, in prison. It, it would have been far easier to just be committed to self. But because he was so committed to God, it didn't cost him. And it didn't cost him big time. And now he's putting it out there before Timothy. Timothy, are you going to pull back from me? Pull back from me means you become committed to self. And if you commit yourself to yourself, you're going to start becoming arrogant and prideful and all those things. But if you stay committed to God, if you stay committed to Jesus, stay committed to the gospel, that's where your true joy is going to be found. But I'm going to just warn you, it's going to cost you. It could lead to persecution. But nonetheless, will you commit to God? Now, I realize that Paul is writing this to a pastor who's living in the ancient city of Ephesus. And in this room, there are no pastors from Ephesus. I mean, heck, outside of me and Jeff, I don't know if there's really anyone else who'd say they have the title of pastor even in Waverly. And yet, I don't believe this is written just to pastors. I believe that this is written to anyone who follows Jesus. Because we see this not just in this pastoral letter from Paul and similar things in his letter to Titus, you see this type of stuff in all of his letters. In fact, I want you to see one. If you know where the book of Ephesians is, flip over to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Now, I want you to realize, this is not written to just a pastor. This is not just written to the elders of a church. In fact, here, chapter 1, verse 1, it says that Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, so now we know who the letter's from. So who is it to? To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. So he's writing this to the whole church. And in chapter 1 and 2, he reminds them of the gospel. Just re-explains it beautifully, powerfully. And so then he explains in chapter 3 why he's so devoted to that gospel. Because you just heard about this gospel, and I've now given my life to it. So now in chapter 4, he begins to shift to say, so here are the implications of the gospel. That if you put your faith in Jesus, here's how it affects the way you live and think and breathe. And he starts that off, chapter 4, verse 1, with this. I, therefore, 
a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. What had they been called to? They'd been called by God to be committed to God. They'd been called through the gospel to put Christ first, not self first. And how do you live out this commitment to God? Verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Do you see how those descriptions right there of someone committed to God varies drastically from the list that was given in 2 Timothy 3? Notice right there in verse 2, he says, with all humility, versus what we saw in 2 Timothy 3 of pride and arrogance. He says, you do this with gentleness instead of being abusive. We could go on and on and on through this. When you are committed to God, these sort of characteristics come out and it's drastically different than the person who's committed to self. So this call, it isn't just to pastors. It isn't just to to elders. It isn't to like overseas missionaries. It isn't just to the the person who can sit at the kitchen table and pray for three hours nonstop. It, It isn't the person who can fast for 40 days from food as if it's nothing. This isn't for some super Christian. This is for anyone who says they are a follower of Jesus. And if that's you, then the call is for you to be committed to God. Now, if you are here today and you are not committed to God, you're, you're honest and you, you'd say, I am not a Christian. I am not a follower of Jesus. I, I'm, I'm curious. I wonder. I have questions. But if that's you, I'm glad you're here. I want you to know that this gospel is for you. That this commitment to God isn't just for Christians to make. It is for you to make. God is calling you. But he doesn't want you just to commit yourself so that you get more out of the deal. That's still a commitment to self. He wants you to be willing to set yourself aside to put him first. Now that's hard. It means you recognize that you have been committed to self, that you are a sinner, and your sin has separated you from God. And in order for you to have God first, you have to recognize that he came and paid the price. You see, the penalty for sin is death. That's why Jesus went to a cross, to pay your penalty for you. And because he's paid the penalty for you, he's now bridged the gap, and you can now come to him. And you can put God first in your life. Now, I realize a lot of you in this room have made that sort of decision. And yet, the call is still there. God is still calling you to commit to him. But as I already confessed before, I gravitate away. It is just far too easy to move from that commitment to God to a commitment to self. That is why sometimes we have to go and do 21 days of fasting and prayer. Because we don't do, I didn't even finish it out, Ephesians 5, 1. Ephesians 5, 1 says this, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. Uh, to imitate someone, if you're going to be an impersonator, you've got to really study the person. Have you ever seen a really good impersonation of some like famous actor or actress? The impersonator, to do it, had to listen to the inflections. They had to figure out how to get the tone just right, even to get some of the body movements. And so in order to do it, you've got to study them. So if you're going to imitate God, you've got to look at God. You've got to study him. Except there's a problem. Um, God's an invisible God. How do you look and study an invisible being? 
And Colossians 1 tells us that Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. So you want to imitate God? Look at Jesus. Study him. Because as you look at him, you begin to realize the love that Jesus had. And you begin to love like Jesus loved. You begin to look at Jesus, see how he lived, and you begin to live like Jesus lived. And next thing you know, you're beginning to imitate God because you are committed to him. So often, we gravitate toward that sin that pulls us away. We get back to that commitment to self. That is why I am asking you here at the start of 2018 to give up something, to remind yourself that you already have enough. I'm asking you to give up something for 21 days that costs you, all right? Maybe it's one meal a day. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to fast breakfast every day for these next three weeks, right? I just the other day thought, I'm going to go ahead and start. I was really hungry and famished. I was not liking this at all. I'm thinking, and I got to do this for three weeks? And yet it was a reminder, God is enough. Man does not live by bread alone, but by the very word of God. Maybe for you, it's fasting one whole day a week. Giving up a meal, like, like the, I mean, not just a meal, but giving up food, say, like every Wednesday. Maybe it's a specific food. Maybe you've been indulging in a little too much chocolate, or you can't get through your day without that coffee. Or maybe it's soda. You just find yourself having to have it every single day. Maybe that's what you need to give up. Maybe it's something like social media. Movies, TV, a certain program. Maybe it's giving up newspaper. I just realized this morning as I was in the shower praying, like I spend almost every single morning kind of reading on my phone the news. But do I give the Bible the same priority in my life? Not always. What do you need to give up so that you're reminded of what's more important? Now, I'm, I'm going to ask you, give up something that's going to cost you. I remember when I was in middle school, there was one of my classmates who was Catholic, and during Lent, he said he gave up popcorn. Problem was he had braces. He had to give up popcorn anyway. It cost him nothing. If you make a decision like that, you're revealing that you're more committed to self than you are to God. And to do this is not to try and impress God. It's not to prove anything. It's to help you and remind you, I am committed to God. So what is it you are going to fast? I encourage you, give it up. If you call Riverwood your church, I want you to join me in this. And then we're going to pray for 21 days for ourselves, for our families, for our community, for our church. We've got some big things coming up for Riverwood. We need to find a new location. We're hoping this year we name elders. These are important things we need to pray about. Would you join me in this? And also, I just want to see you continuing to grow spiritually. I don't want us to be a church that just shows up on Sunday, puts in our time, sings some songs, we're happy, we shake hands, we leave. I want us to be a church that is so committed to God and the gospel that this pervades every part of our life. And so when we gather on Sundays, it is to gather with our family, to worship a holy God and get sent out of here to go and make a difference in this world. Sometimes we just get so distracted by this world that we end up gravitating back to self. What are you going to give up? Today, I want us to begin this 21 days of fasting and prayer with prayer. I want us to pray together as a family. What we're going to do is we're going to first pray just a prayer confession. I don't know about you, but this week as I was studying there in 2 Timothy 3 and reading through verses 2 through 5, a couple of those items kind of jumped out at me, and I didn't like it. 
And I realized I probably needed to spend a moment and just confess those things. Maybe as you were hearing it, one or two of those jumped out at you. So what I want to do is I want to just create a little bit of space for you to confess. And so, Josh, would you just put up on the screen uh, that list? Um, it'll be, yeah, right there. Um, I want you to kind of read through that. And if one or two or three of those jump out of you, I just, I just want you to take a moment and just pause and confess that sin to God. So let's just spend about 30, 60 seconds in prayer, and I'll bring us out of it. Now, that sin that you just confessed, I want you to realize it's been paid for. God is not sitting on his throne in heaven, seething at the fact that you've engaged in these characteristics. He has redeemed you from it. He's calling you out of it. So I want us to just spend a moment thanking God for his grace, thanking him for the cross, thanking him for Jesus. So would you just spend a moment thanking him? Now, the last prayer we're going to pray together is a prayer of commitment. Some of us, we're going to pick something to fast from. It's going to be hard. And we're going to need God to give us the strength to make it through. Uh, as we pray, as we fast, as we seek God, um, our enemy is not going to like it. He's going to come and try and disrupt our marriages, our parenting, our workplaces, even maybe disrupt the setup on Sunday mornings. Would you just pray with me that we would stay committed through this? Because it isn't about trying to prove something to God. It isn't about trying to prove something to ourselves. It is about trying to remind ourselves that we have a God who is good and he is enough. So would you pray with me that we would stay committed through these 21 days?